topic um, of these classes is Moshe, and uh, this is Thursday, next Thursday, today's Moshe's uh, York side actually, 7th of Adar, Zion Adar is the, and according to the tradition, the day Moshe was both born and the day he died, he dies and born the same day, um, and uh, next Thursday's Purim, so... So we next, Thursday? next Thursday we have a class. I was thinking. We do not. No, not important. No, I was thinking that. Um, oh, I mean, so today is Zayanata. Today is Zayanata. Yeah, yeah, today. Zayanata. Today is Zayanata. The um, yeah. I was thinking about Megillah Esther, which is next Thursday. But we're doing studying Moshe. So is there okay. is there a connection now? But is there a connection between Moshe and and Megillah Esther? <coughs> of course, the answer is there is actually a deep connection. Some people have noticed this already, but I wanted to try to flesh this out a bit because I began to think more about the presence of Moshe in the Megillah, and it struck me that itself is actually very interesting. As everybody knows, that the one of the main characters, if not the main character sort of stands behind the story of the Megillah is the Yosef. The Megillah has many, 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 many uh, linguistic connections and therefore also conceptual connections to the story of Yosef. But I began to think that actually Yosef is part of the story, but the point about the story of Yosef, what's missing in the Joseph story, what's missing in the Joseph story is that Joseph is the Jew of exile, lives in exile, and all that, of course, is what the Megillah was about, functioning in the land in exile. But what the Yosef story does not have, which is very central to the Megillah, is uh, Amalek. There's no Amalek in the story of Joseph, but in Megillah Esther, the main enemy uh, is, of course, Haman. Haman is an Amalekite. The word Amalek never appears in the Megillah, but he is Haman Agagi, Agag, in the story of uh, Shmuel, and uh, also what's found in the Chumash in one place. Uh, God's mentioned three times in the Bible. Once in the story of King Saul, Megillat Esther, and the third place is in the prophecies of Bilaam. In prophecies of Bilaam, and the fourth prophecy also mentions Amalek. So I think let us posit, and I'm sure it's right, that Haman, the Agagite, is also the Amalekite. If that be the case, the main enemy in the Megillah is obviously Haman. And that piece of, that's not in the Joseph story. The Joseph story is about functioning in Egypt, in the culture of Mitzrayim. But this, this idea of the enemy of the Jews, the Amalekite, that's not present in the Megillah. But it's in the, uh, in, the, in the Yosef story. But it is present in the Chumash. And the person actually in the Chumash who is takes on the charge of defeating Amalek is of course Moshe. So it struck me that actually there's something very interesting about Moshe and the Megillah and I began to wonder to what degree the story of Moshe serves as a backdrop to the Megillah. I must say that before I began to think about this I was quite convinced the moment I thought of it that there are going to be many links between Moshe and the Megillah and I wanted to say something else, which I thought about just this past week, which I think is actually a uh, 
very significant towards an understanding of the Megillah. I've ne- never met anybody who thought about it in these terms. No one I ever met. And I think it actually opens up a new vista on Megillah and Esther. So I'll start with that. And then I will just draw our attention to some of the links between the story of Moshe and the story of the, uh, of the Megillah. What struck me is this. The, we have a tradition which is found in the Talmud and I'm probably found in many Midrashim as well. The tradition, which is familiar, I'm sure, to some of you, is that the holiday of Purim is a kind of, a kind of acceptance of the, of, the, of the Torah. That the Gemara says, for example, that when the Jews stood at Sinai, that God held the mountain over, over their heads and threatened them and said, if you accept the Torah, I will... It's fine. If you don't accept the mountain, the Torah... And up this mountain, this will, be, this will be the end of you, and you will be buried under the mountain. God lifted up the mountain and held it over their head. So under those circumstances, the people naturally said, we accept. And that's the, that's the Gemara in, in Shabbos. So the Gemara says, so one of the Amorim comments on that very famous statement, which means, if that be the case, then we always have an out. If someone fails to observe the Torah, person has a good excuse. The excuse being, I never accepted it in the first place. It's under duress. I was coerced into it. So therefore, the Jews never really fully accepted the Torah. To which another Amora answers and says, that's true. But the Jews did accept the Torah later. When did the Jews accept the Torah later? On Purim. That in the time of Esther, the Jews accepted the Torah in the days of Esther. As it says in the Megillah, Kimu v'kiblu ha'yehudim, the Jews, Kimu v'kiblu, they certified, they validated, and they accepted, and the Gemara comments, they accepted what they already had accepted once before. So, Kimu mashikiblu kvar, they validated the earlier acceptance. What's the early? The acceptance of the Torah at Sinai is problematic, because it was coercive. But at Purim, the Jews fully embraced the Torah. That's the Gemara, very famous Gemara. In Mesefet Shabbat, the question is, what does it mean? Yep. At what point was it incumbent on every Jew to hear the Megillah read? So that the Mishnah talks about that. Uh, yeah. The Mishnah well, discusses the that. The Mishnah, even before the Gemara. It's yeah, it's in the Mishnah. So, right. it is very ancient that uh, even yeah. before Mishnah, because Mishnah would have recorded what was already done. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah. The, yeah. the assumption, okay, so the, the history of Purim is very murky, but the idea that all Jews read the Megillah is a very old, or hear the Megillah anyway, is a very old tradition. The question when you see such a Gemara, it's very famous actually, the question is what is, the, what is that Gemara actually trying to say? And the truth is there are many different pieces to it. What does it mean that the Torah was coerced? What does it mean to say that God holds the mountain over Israel's heads? That's a very good question. What is the Gemara trying to say? But in any event, leaving that aside for a moment, what is interesting is that the Gemara seems to be suggesting that, the, that through the holiday of Purim, the observance of Purim, that the Jews are accepting the Torah. I'll give you one interpretation, which is not the main point I want to talk about, but just to, to, the Meshach Chachba, Rebbe Simcha of Dvinsk, lived in the beginning of end of the 19th century. So he says this, he says that what the Gemara means to say is that when we accepted the Torah at Sinai, we didn't have a choice because there were so many miracles. There were ten plagues, splitting of the sea, 
so that the food is falling from heaven, water out of a rock. So what do you mean we had a choice? Who wouldn't accept the Torah? Obviously. So therefore, there's no choice. So, but in Purim is different. Purim is a holiday, a book. God's name is not even mentioned one time. So it's a Purim is a time of, as the Gemara comments, Esther. What does Esther mean? The Gemara says doesn't really mean this, but Esther in Torah minayin. What's the source of Esther in the Torah? Comments the Gemara. On that day I will hide my face. The idea of hiddenness. So to accept the Torah, when God is hidden, that's a real acceptance. To accept the Torah when it's obviously a positive, that's what's the that's not real it kind of coerced. That's how Ramea Simcha explained the Gemara. But that's not my point. I'll make a different point. The Gemara, that and other Gemaras like it, there's several different statements in the Midrash about this. That essentially Purim, they see Purim as a kind of acceptance of the Torah. So where is that coming from? The Midrashim never, never explain themselves, you understand? They make statements, but they don't actually really explain what they're getting at. So there are two ways to look at the Midrash. One can read it in a very narrow sense and accept it or reject it. Or, what, or one can say, the Midrash is trying to say something. For the life of me, I don't know what they're saying. They can't really mean that the Jews accepted the Torah on Purim, but what are they saying? Why is the holiday of Purim, how is it related to accepting the Torah? So I began to think about this, and suddenly I had inspiration about the Megillah. There's tons of stuff written about the Megillah, by the way, it's a big thing now. No one I've ever spoken to or, see or read ever, ever saw this, and I'm sure it's right, actually. And now is it right, it opens up a whole, whole other, different understanding of the Megillah. And that's the following. What is the structure of the, of the book of Esther? Megillah Esther, what is the structure? Structure is the following. It's basically nine, nine chapters and three more verses long. For some reason, I don't know why they made chapter 10, chapter 10. The chapter in verse... Uh, uh, chapter in verse division is not a Jewish division. I don't know who did it. It's bizarre beyond belief that chapter 10 is three verses. It's sort of ridiculous, but that's not our problem. Okay, we accepted it, fine. In any event, basically the nine chapters. Eight plus chapters tell us a story. That's the Megillah. The end of the Megillah essentially tells us how the holiday of Purim came to be. When I was thinking the following thought, the first two books of the Torah, the first two books of the Torah, how do they begin? The first two books of the Torah, the Torah begins with creation. First the creation of the whole world, then the story of the Garden of Eden, and then you have the book of Genesis, Rashid, and then you have Exodus. And the book of Exodus is ending, essentially, for the last five Sidrot in the book of Shemot are a description of instructions how to build the Mishkan and the actual building of the Mishkan. Anybody who's ever studied the Mishkan knows Necham Oleibus talks about this at great length, but you don't even need her, it's, it's actually obvious. And the Midrashim talk about it. They point out the many parallels between the creation narratives and the Mishkan. Both in theme and language, the Mishkan has all kinds of references to creation. What to make of that is a very good question, but I think one thing we can make of it is the following. That from a certain perspective, we think about the Torah, the five books, but from a certain perspective, you can say the Torah begins with Genesis, with creation, but in a certain sense, there's a real ending 
in the, in the building of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is, one might say, a completion, the ultimate completion of creation. It's a different kind of creation. The first creation is God's creation alone. The human beings has little, I would say little, I would say none, but a little input. Certainly in chapter 1, the human has no input. In the second creation the story, the human has a little bit of input, because the human being names all the animals in the second creation story and names the, names the woman. But basically, it's a story about God creating the human being. In the tabernacle with the Mishkan, that's not the case. In the Mishkan, it's true God gives all the instructions, that's for sure. God gives verbal instructions, God shows Moshe what you've seen, but Chumash places a tremendous emphasis on the people that build the Mishkan. Not only Betzalel, who was a great architect, but his, his assistants, and then all the men and the women who are donating their, not just the gifts, but also their expertise. They're called Chachamim, the women who are called Chochmat the women are also, the men and the women both involved in this, in contributing their skills and their resources to build this house. So the Mishkan, unlike first creation, is a partnership between the human being and God. The one who emphasized that very much was Martin Buber. His writings, he emphasized that tremendously. He saw the Mishkan as successful because it had human involvement. In any event, the point which is clear and I think unequivocal is that one can say in the first two books of the Torah they begin with creation and the second book of the Torah one might say is a completion of the first creation so it's an envelope structure. It begins with chapter 1 of Genesis and ends with chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. Total of 90 chapters. In a sense, that comprises one book. Within the five books of Moses, there are different ways to arrange the books. But it's clear. And even the second book of the Torah begins with the letter Vav, V.A. Lashvot. So it's a continuation. So the first two books, essentially, one might say, chapter 1, chapter 2, but it's one book. Now, why is that? What is the relevance, you're probably wondering, to anything? I'll tell you the relevance. What is... No, something's funny to what Sherlock Holmes said to Watson, you know? Watson writes it all down, you know? <laughs> Please don't write anything down. Why not? So, Watson, why not? After you write it down, people will say, it's so simple. But if you don't write it down, they'll appreciate the brilliance. But when you write it down, it's so obvious. So, here's the point. What is the structure of the first two books of the Torah? It's very simple. The Torah has a story. It begins with Genesis. The book of Genesis is just stories. The truth of the matter is the book of Exodus is also stories. It's a story of the Exodus. Plagues, Moshe's intercessions, we studied the plagues, crossing the sea, walking in the desert, setting up a judicial system. But there are two places in the book of Exodus where suddenly in the Torah we have what I would say are legal sections. There are two legal sections in the book of Exodus. Two. The first of which is book of Exodus chapter 12, which begins, This is the first month of the year. And what follows is a legal, extended legal section, which makes the following point. On the 14th day of the first month, you are bringing the Paschal sacrifice, you start preparing on the 10th day, on the 15th day of the month is the festival of Matzot, Chaga Matzot, 14th and the 15th, the 14th is Pesach, the 15th, Chaga Matzot, and the various and attendant laws are found in chapter 12, long chapter, 
in the beginning of chapter 13. That's one legal section in Exodus. Then there's an extended legal section in Exodus, which begins with the Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments, the people said to Moshe, why don't you talk to us? We don't want to hear God's voice anymore. We're afraid. Moshe says, fine. Moshe goes up to the mountain and receives a whole bunch of additional instruction. Mishpatim, they're called. Ela Mishpatim. Comes down the mountain in chapter 24. He tells the people all that he was told. They don't know. And the people said to Moshe, everything God has said we will do. Then Moshe wrote all it down in the book. And he reads it to the people. And the people said, everything that God has spoken, we will do, we will obey. And Moshe takes the blood of the sacrifice and throws it on the people and says, behold, the blood of the covenant that God has made between God and the people. Those are the two legal sections of the... Then the book concludes with the building of the instructions for the Mishkan, Golden Calf episode, and the building of the Mishkan. So I was thinking... That's the structure of the Torah, of the first two books of the Torah. Now what is the structure of Megillah Esther? Here's what's very interesting. So Megillah Esther is a story. For the first eight plus chapters, you got a story. And then in chapter nine, the Megillah is describing to us how the holiday of Purim came into existence and what the rules are concerning Purim. And what basically, it, there are essentially three stages, it sounds like. Maybe four stages. One is what happened the year they won the war, or the year they rested from fighting. Torah says they made it a day of drinking and partying, and joy, a party which involves drinking and a simcha. Then it says that Jews subsequently observed one day of Purim on the 14th of Adar. Happy day, Mishta and Simcha, and also they send gifts to their friends. Then the Megillah says, halfway through chapter 9, that Mordechai wrote letters to the Jews, far and near, and he instructed them to observe these, the day of Purim on the 14th of Adar, next Thursday, but also to observe the 15th of Adar, because on the 15th day, the Jews in Shushan were still fighting on the 14th. The Jews in Shushan only rested on the 15th to observe these two days every year, says Mordechai. And also, he added something else, gifts to the poor. He added Matanot Yonim, and the Megillah says the Jews accepted that which they had begun to do and that which Mordechai instructed them to do and that these days are remembered and performed, it says, in every state, every city, in every generation, every family. That's the first significant milestone for our purposes. What got me thinking about this, among other things, is that the Megillah says, with that verse, the Megillah says, chapter 9, verse number 1800, page 1800, the last line of page 1800, chapter 9, verse number 28, these days, Hayamima Eleh, Nizkarim v'nasim b'chodar v'adar Mishpacha u'mishpacha Medina u'medina v'ir These days, means the 14th and the 15th are performed, observed and remembered in every generation every family, every state and every city What got me wondering a long time ago about this verse was 
that the expression in the Megillah you have in several places, Medina u Medina, every state, there are 127 states. The word city, every city, the word city also appears in the Megillah, less than Medina, but it appears. But this is the only place in the Megillah where you have the expression Mishpacha u Mishpacha, every family. So I began to wonder about that, why in this particular verse, the Megillah says these days, plural of Purim, are performed by every family. And I began to think about, where else do we have a holiday that's called a family celebration? We have one. The Carmel Exactly. Paschal sacrifice. Right? The carbon Pesach is actually a family celebration. I began to think that actually it's very interesting because Passover in the Chumash is the 14th. The next day, the 15th, Chagamatzot. In that chapter 12, the Torah talks about the rules of Passover. It makes it clear that it's a strange holiday. You have two holidays, one after the next. The first is called Pesach which is always the 14th. The Passover, we call Passover in the Chumash, it's not Passover. It's called Chagam Atzot. That begins on the 15th. So here, there you have a kind of model for Purim. Because Purim, as Mordechai instructed them, is not just a one-day holiday, but a two-day holiday. And it's the same days as Pesach, the 14th and the 15th. And therefore, it got me to think that actually, what the Megillah is hinting at is that the holiday of Purim in the Megillah is somehow connected to the holiday of Passover. And we have to remember two things. First of all, the holiday of Purim is exactly 30 days before Pesach. It also falls on the same days of the month, both the 14th and the 15th. And within, 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 within the rabbinic tradition, it's actually very interesting. There are all kinds of links to Passover. We have to remember that Haman's decree, actually, was a, he, he cast the lot probably on the 13th of the first month and then Esther is fasting for three days, she's fasting on Passover. She's fasting on Passover. In the, in the, in the, in the, in the Hasidic tradition, I think the first day of Cholamoi, I forget what it's called. I think Haman's, Haman's Yorzai, I think they call it, something like that. The point is, it's, it's basically, there's a connection, even in the Megillah, between Passover and, and Purim. So I began to think, actually, the way Purim is set up is like this. First, there's a first letter. Mordechai sends his letter around, and he insists that the Jews have a Jewish holiday, which means Matanot Lev Yonim. That's what defines it as a Jewish day. And not a one-day holiday, but a two-day holiday. And the Torah calls it, and the Megillah calls it a family holiday. And then, on page 1801, it says that Esther, the Queen Esther and Mordechai, wrote another letter, a second letter. It's a second letter. In the second letter, and they send the second letter to all the Jews, words of peace and truth, and they tell them the purpose of the letter is to validate these days of Purim in their appropriate times, as Mordechai the Jew and Esther had validated and accepted upon themselves and on their descendants the, uh, the days, the obligation of fasting and the obligation of crying out. So the big question is, what is, what is the point of the second letter? The first letter we understand, Mordechai sends letters to all the Jews, to the holiday of Purim, two-day holiday, together with the drinking and the giving gifts to friends, etc. But why is there a need at the end of the Megillah, the end of chapter 9, to have another letter? 
what is the function of the second letter? So the point that I made in a couple of the other classes I spoke about this as well, in my opinion, it is not because the first letter was not accepted. Many have made such a claim. I don't believe that's correct. There's no, not a shred of evidence in the Megillah that the Jews have not accepted Purim. On the contrary, it says these days of Purim will never depart from the Jewish people. Sounds like there's a full acceptance. If there's a full acceptance, why is there a need for a second letter? And my point about that, I made two points, but one of them, relevant for us is this. That actually, the point of the second letter is not because they don't accept the first letter, it's the opposite. Because what the first, the first letter they accept. Once they accept the first letter, then you write a second letter, because the point of the second letter is to make it a formal acknowledgement. And I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I mentioned it. Yes, so I did. Formalizing. formalizing. How is it formalized? The example I gave, which I think is very relevant, is when Moses comes down the mountain, having received all of the laws, and he tells them everything God had told him in the beginning of chapter 24. And the people said, Naseh, we will do it. Then he writes it down, then he reads it again to them, and then they say, Naseh in the Shema, at which point he takes the blood and throws it on their heads and says, this is the blood of the covenant. You've entered into a covenant with God. So it's sort of like, if you think of it this way, you, suppose you want, to make a, you want to make some transaction. So first you speak to the other party. I want to sell you my house. Are you interested? Yes. My client wants to buy the house. Shake hands. Okay. Now let's go to contract. Now let's close it. So the first, everybody agrees. First you make sure everybody fully accepts the idea. Once it's fully accepted, then you, then you make it legal then you make it official by signing a contract. That's what happens at Har Sinai. Moshe comes down the mountain. Let me tell you what God told me. All these rules that God told me. If you dig a pit, if there's a slave, male slave, female slave, cities of refuge, the works. Oh, very good. Everything God said will do. Oh, really? Okay, great. Now he writes it down. Now, let me, now then he reads it to them. He actually reads it out of a book, out of a safer. And the people said, Now, seven Nishma, chapter 10. Now, Sevenish Bami's handshake deal, deal is done, pours the blood on their head and says, the blood of the covenant which God has made with you. The Megillah is the same. The Megillah is, the first letter is, do you accept Purim? We accept it. And there's the second letter. The second letter is not because they didn't accept it, it's the opposite. They did accept it, but the second letter makes it formal. Now, I will add one small detail to this, which is, I think, also correct, and that is, it's never just the same. In other words, mm-hmm. let's say in the Chumash, the people all said, Naaseh. Do you accept the Torah? This is what God told me. Everything God has, has commanded you, Naaseh, we will do. Great. He writes it down, he reads it to them again. And the people said, Naaseh and Nishma. The truth is, Naaseh and Nishma is not identical to Naaseh. Naaseh and Nishma means something additional. It probably means, as some of the commentaries say, that's what I think it means as well. Whatever that's worth. Naaseh means we'll do what God said to you now. Nishma means in the future. Whatever God continues to say. We accept this fully. We also accept this fully as the basis for any other kinds of legislation or commands that we receive. Okay? So it's never exactly identical. But fundamentally, fundamentally it's putting into practice that which we were commanded. Now let's think a second about the structure of, of Megillah Esther. 
Megillah Esther is a very simple structure. One second. It's a story. It's a story. At the end of the book, it's a ritual enactment. And the ritual enactment connects us to two other stories. The first is the Paschal Sacrifice and the Chag HaMatzot. And the second is the formal acceptance of the Torah in chapter 24, Nased and Nased and Ishmael. In short, it connects us to the two legal sections of the book of Exodus. In short, what you have in the Megillah is precisely the identical structure to what you have in the Torah. And it, it, the Torah begins with the Mishkan and ends with the Mishkan. The Megillah begins with Achashverosh and ends with Achashverosh. That's the frame of it. Achashverosh's own house is a kind of Mishkan. It's, I mean, it's a false Mishkan, but it's a Mishkan. So there, that I think is what the, the Agalata and the Midrashim are picking up, where they see Purim as parallel to the Torah, because the fact of the matter is that what is stunning about Megillah Esther, we have, we have no other book like this. Well, you actually have a book which describes this holiday which, which human beings create. We don't have any such thing. And by the way, before I have a comments, I will simply say that the one who noticed, I don't know about the Megillah, but the one who noticed this particular structure of stories and then two legal sections in the book of Exodus is none other than that beloved teacher Rashi. That's how Rashi starts the Chumash, the first Rashi. says, Rashi, why does the Torah begin with Breshit Bara Elohim? The Torah should have begun with something else, says Rashi. That's the first mitzvah. So Rashi says, if this is a code, Rashi sees the Torah as a law book, so what is it starting with the stories? The first 61 chapters, skip them. Skip the 50 chapters of Genesis and 11 of Exit. Let's get to the meat and potatoes. Chapter 12, which of course is the first legal section of Exodus, and begins it's the first month and details the rules of the Paschal sacrifice and the rules of the Passover holiday etc. etc. So Rashi noticed of course that the first two books of the Torah consist of exactly the story and then the legal sections. The Megillah is exactly that. It's a story but it all leads up to some kind of ritual enactment that we call Purim but the holiday of Purim as described in the Megillah, is first of all related to Passover, two-day holiday, but secondly, the acceptance of Purim is exactly related to the way the Jews accepted the Torah. So the Agada picks up and says, when did the Jews really accept the Torah on the holiday of Purim? They're seeing something in the Megillah. Now, before I have a comment, I wanted to point about this. If what lies behind, if this is true, it's interesting that in a certain sense, what lies behind the structure of the Megillah is is the structure of the first two books of the Torah, and actually in thinking about the characters of the Megillah, it would not be at all surprising. Everybody knows that the Joseph story lies behind the Megillah. But it would not be surprising if it's Joseph plus somebody else, in this case Moses, and for a very simple reason. Because as I started this morning, the Joseph story is missing one piece that's central to the Megillah. It's missing Amalek. There is no Amalek in the Joseph story. Amalek is mentioned as a force only after we leave Egypt in chapter 17 and the one who, is, one who confronts Amalek is actually Moses he also instructs Joshua but Moses ascends the mountain with his staff and he's going to stand on top of the mountain and when Moses lifts up his hands Israel is beating Amalek and when Moses' hands are falling down Israel is losing so it's not surprising what? it's not 
Amalek is us, actually. Amalek is different. Amalek is Esav. The important point about Amalek, more than any other, is partially true of other adversaries, but it's most true of Amalek. And that is that Amalek actually, the Hasidic Rebbe say this, which is all very good, they say many wonderful things, but in this case you don't even need them. The Torah actually, Amalek is actually in the Chumash, in the Chumash itself, an external enemy, but it also can be a kind of internal enemy. That is to say, for example, when you read the story of the golden calf, what is stunning about the story of the golden calf is that all the language of the golden calf story, all of it, is taken from, taken from, uh, from uh, Amalek. One word after the next, it's coming the characters, Amalek characters, the languages Amalek. The golden calf, there's no external enemy. The golden calf is about us. And I think the reason that that's true and this is an important point for the Megillah as well. I mean, I can't stop all the problems now. We have to remember one the difference between Paro and Amalek. Paro is actually an Egyptian. He's a Mitzri. <coughs> Mitzrayim is one of the sons of Ham. Ham had several sons, four sons. Kush, Put, Mitzrayim, and Canaan. Canaan and Mitzrayim are brothers. They are all sons of Ham. That's the son that Noah curses. Amalek is not related to them, actually. It doesn't come from that line. Amalek is related to Esau. It's Esau's grandson. And we have to remember something about Esau, which is very important. We, don't, we, we forget this all the time. Esau and Yaakov are actually twins. They're identical. I assume they're identical twins. They, they're, they're twins. In fact, there's a very famous, famous Agalita in the Book of Esther. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. Which makes the point that from a distance you can't tell them apart, actually. They're identical. So therefore it's easy to understand why Amalek, both Amalek is, is from one perspective the worst because they're, they're coming from, they should be at the most helpful to us and they're not. But the other part is the most dangerous because they're most like us. Amalek and Israel, it's easy to see the move which sees Amalek as a kind of internal it's easy to internalize Amalek because Amalek basically is that twin brother. That is the point. Now, what do you want to say, Abra? So and I'll get to the point where I want to make Moses' presence in the Megillah. So what you're talking about is really fascinating, and I wonder... It's beyond belief fascinating, I would say that right. No, nobody's seen it. Is the, if we follow this, this train of thought, then does Purim become a Pesach in Galut story? Like when you compare them, right. then what is that? How does that add to our understanding of each of these holidays? That's a very good point. It does sound that way. It sounds in the Megillah. The Megillah, after remember, the plain reading of the Megillah does not speak of any kind of. There's no land of Israel in the Megillah. There's no temple in the Megillah, and there is a temple, but it's the palaces of Achashverosh. There's no Mishkan. There's no Migdash. There's no land of Israel. It's a plain reading of the Megillah. So I was walking out the other night after Yoni Grossman spoke. He was schmoozing about the Megillah. So he was talking about this. He asked me, or someone asked me, do I think that the Megillah... I think someone was talking to Yoni and he asked me what I think. I, I don't remember what Yoni said. He, said. he said, what's your view about the Megillah? Is the Megillah in favor of... Does the Megillah support exile? I said, the Megillah does not support exile. That's a mistake. It's, 
The Megillah is about exile. In other words, exile is a fact. The Megillah is not supporting or not supporting. <coughs> it's a mitziyut. It's a reality. The issue of the Megillah is not whether it's good or bad. It's probably bad for the most part, but it doesn't make a difference <coughs> to where you live. <coughs> to where you live. And the question is, having if you live in this place, how do you live? How do you live in a land which is Haman, but also Achashverosh, who in the plain reading of the Megillah, and the overwhelming Jewish tradition about Achashverosh, is that he's a bad guy. There's a dispute whether he's a, a fool or a bad guy, and I would say that the overwhelming agadic view of the, of, the, of the Jewish tradition is that he may be a fool, but he's certainly a bad guy. That's no doubt about it. Whether he's a bad guy and an idiot, or just a bad guy and a clever bad guy, that's a different question. But in other words, the world is Achashverosh. It begins with Achashverosh. That's the, that's the reality. And the question of the Megillah, given this reality of such a world, how, do you, how, how can one function as a moral human being, A and B, how could one function as one who has a different identity? The Jewish people in the Megillah, Haman was 1,000% correct, actually. He made a simple point. There was a difference. That's how the Megillah ends. Purim is different than the drinking holiday. It wasn't initially the Jews of Persia are Persians, so they have a drinking holiday. Then Mordechai says, reminds them, no, no, we don't celebrate this way. We have gifts to the poor. That gifts to the poor is not a detail. Gifts to the poor, it defines Purim as a Jewish holiday. Otherwise, it's not a Jewish holiday. Otherwise, it's who knows what. But, but, but Purim is a Jewish holiday. So I would say your point is very well taken. There's no doubt that what it sounds like in the Megillah is that the holiday of Purim is parallel to, whether it's supplants, I don't know, but it's certainly parallel to Passover. It's a, it's a holiday you can celebrate when, you know, when God is very hidden. I mean, maybe God is in the Megillah, maybe God's not in the Megillah. That's a very good question. At the end of the day, the, those that certainly bring about the redemption is uh, Mordechai and especially Esther through our ingenuity and our courage. Okay, maybe God is helping us from a distance. Maybe God works through them. That's another way to read it. There are many ways to read it, but at the end of the day, it's not exactly the same as Moshe. Moshe is a great hero, but at the end of the day, it's very clear in the Chumash that God is giving all of, all of, all of the directions. It's clear that God gives the directions. Um, one place where you don't actually see God giving Moshe directions is actually Amalek. God did not say Amalek attacks, and Moshe said to Yosh, I'm going up to the mountain. God didn't tell Moshe to go to the mountain. Moshe goes himself, which is actually very interesting. In an Amalek story, the initial response to Amalek is just the human being who responds. It does not, it's not God. It's in contrast, actually, to what to what it says about Egypt. In Mitzrayim, when we stood at the sea, the people start complaining. Because on one hand, there's water in front of us, can't go through. On the other hand, the army's behind us. So the people scream to Moshe, what did you do? Why did you take us out of Egypt? We're better off in Egypt. Let's, let's, die, let's die in Egypt. Why should we die in the middle of a desert? So Moshe said to the people, don't be afraid. God is going to be with you. Hashem Yilachem Lachem. God will fight your wars. V'yatem tacharishun and you shall be silent. When it comes to Amalek, two, two, three chapters later, God's not, nothing about God fighting your wars. At the end, God says, I have my war against Amalek every generation. But in the initial response, Moshe goes up the mountain, and there's nothing about God at all. Moshe goes up with his staff, he talks to Yoshua, his general, to fight. I was thinking in the Megillah, actually, it, it actually references this. <coughs> Mordechai says to Esther, you have to go save the Jews. 
you have to. She says, I can't do it. That's the key chapter, chapter 4. I can't do it. I wasn't called to the king. If you go into the king and you're not called, you're going to be put to death. Except if he extends the scepter, I have to be called for 30 days. And Mordechai says to Esther, don't imagine that you're going to survive and the Jews will die. But rather, if you are silent at this moment, Tacharishi is not a word that appears so many times. The one place it appears is, it's what Moshe told the people at the sea. God will fight for you, you shall be silent. That's true when you're fighting Mitzrayim. But it's not true about Amalek. With Amalek, you can't be silent. With Amalek, Moshe goes to the top of the mountain. And not only that, he gets Yeshua to fight below. He's fighting on two fronts, on top and on the bottom. So you can't be silent. In that case, that's what, that's what Mordechai said to Esther. So your point is well taken. I would say, yes. I would say that Purim is a kind of Passover, Passover in exile, pass, redemption in a situation where God is not manifesting any miracles. Passover is a holiday of miracles. Ten plagues, splitting the sea. But Amalek is not so. Purim is not so. God's never mentioned here at all. So therefore, I would say that the point is well taken. Now, let me get to where Moshe appears in Miguel and Esther. So it's like this. I mean, yes? Uh, Haman is, is an, he's, the Amalek, he's part of the Amalekite group. Yes, he is. Okay, that's what I just wanted. It's actually very interesting since you raised. I'm writing this commentary on the Megillah now. As I said, there's tons of stuff on the Megillah. A lot of good stuff, actually. So to repeat what they say, what's the point? You can read there, yeah? So I try to say things that people don't say. Here's an interesting question. So no, nobody I, I've ever seen. I mean, they raise it and they say some things of not my style. What's curious about the Megillah is the following. It's obvious in the Megillah, for many reasons, that Haman is an Amalekite. That, that's clear. And that there are many pieces, of, I'll get to some of them in a minute, there are many pieces of language of the Megillah that are reminding us of the struggle against Amalek. Having said all that, it is extremely curious that the word Amalek never appears in uh, Megillah and Esther. Never appears. Despite the fact that there are many, many references to Amalek, including at the end of the book, when the book says, end of the Megillah, the Megillah says that the verse we just read, that these days are remembered and performed in every door. This Karim v'nasim b'chadar v'adar, right? And then it continues to say that um, Esther and Mordechai wrote another letter, and the words of Esther validated these days of Purim, v'nichtav b'sefer, it was written down in a book. You have three terms right at the end of the Megillah. You have the word Sefer. You have the idea of memory, Niskarim. And you have the expression from generation to generation, Midor Dar. Those three terms are three terms that appear in a central way in the Mitzvah to remember Amalek. God said to Moshe, right? And Moshe said to Yoshua, I'm sorry, God said to Moshe, write this down in the book. Ketov Dod Zikaron Basefer. Write this down as a memory in a book. And what do you write down in a memory in a book? So Moshe says a few verses later that there's a war of God against Amalek, from generation to generation. Megillah and Esther ends with those three terms, to remember, a book, and in every generation. Therefore, Megillah and Esther is referencing, obviously, the command to destroy Amalek, which is what the Megillah is basically about. It's about Amalek against the Jews. 
Now, Amalek against the Jews, of course, is Moses' charge. It's not Joseph. There is no Amalek in the Joseph story. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the Megillah never uses the word Amalek. Why not? Why doesn't the Megillah use the word Amalek? That's a good question. About a year ago, I was in Boston. Someone asked me that question. So I said, I can't have the time, it's a long answer. There's, there's actually two, two parts to the answer. One is, why, one is, the question is, why doesn't the name Amalek appear? And the other question is, what does Agag mean? It's called the Haman, the, the Agagite, Agag. Now Agag in the book of Samuel is the king of Amalek. But what does that signify, Agag? The word Agag appears in three places in the Bible. In Samuel, in Megillah and Esther, in the prophecies of Bilam appears one time. Let me give you, there's a long answer to Agag, which is actually beautiful. But that will take me a whole year to explain it. That's excellent. Some other time. But let me say one small point about Amalek. It's obvious Amalek is there, but I think the Megillah actually is making a different point. And that is, when you have the word Amalek, even though the word Amalek is unclear if Amalek is a nation or a person, and Joshua weakened Amalek and his people by the sword. It sounds like Amalek's the name of the king, actually. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we think of the word Amalek in the Bible, we think about a people, Amalek, that dwell in the southern part of Israel, that are they tend, they're kind of marauders who take advantage of people's weakness and attack them and destroy them. And they're a very powerful nation. That's what we think of Amalek. So I was thinking that in the Megillah, actually, in the Megillah, Haman, it's, it's, in other words, what's not clear in the Megillah, what's clear is this, there's one, there's one bad guy in the Megillah, his name is Haman. There are more bad guys too, but there's one bad guy. But Haman wants to kill all the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. So he's going to get an army to do this. It sounds like from the Megillah, that this army are essentially not so much volunteers, it sounds like he's going to purchase his army, he's going to buy the army. It's not totally clear, but it sounds to me that the money that he wants to give the king is to get an army. That's what I believe it is. In any event, my point is very simple. The army of Haman, who are these people? It's not clear to me at all, in fact, it's pretty clear the other way, that these are all Amalekites. They're all coming from the 127 states. They're all coming from southern, from southern, southern Israel, near, near Azra or something. I mean, that doesn't sound that way. It sounds like the people who are going to fight the Jews, Haman's army, are people that he basically buys. In which case, the point is that Amalek, whether he even exists anymore as a nation, who knows? Amalek in the Megillah is already a concept. And the point of the, 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 the frightening part of it is, you don't need a million Amalekites to kill the Jews. You need one. Because the one, if it's the wrong person, can do unbelievable amount of damage because the one person, the army of the, the of Haman, are they Amalekites? They're Amalekites in a certain sense. They're the following Haman. But Amalek in the Megillah is not about a particular race, particular ethnic group. It's this idea that whoever joins up with Haman is an Amalekite, right? You know? So Amalek becomes already in the Megillah, I would say, evil. Amalek is a representation of evil, and it's actually even, even, even more frightening because you, you think you may destroy the, you can destroy a million Amalekites. But it just takes one person, actually, 
to that's why the Megillah is a frightening book because at the end of the day it's bidar dar I'm allowed to know every generation so you, the fact that you destroy Haman once does not mean that there's not going to be another Haman you can virtually guarantee there will be another Haman there are a lot of bad guys out there you know what I mean so that I think is why the Megillah maybe doesn't want you to mention the name Amalek it's not about Amalek it's about a person one person is sufficient now what, what the name Agag signifies is actually very interesting Agag I think actually has a meaning but to go through all that I don't want to get into now what do you want to say Abra? no okay now here's what I want to say about yeah well, you said the, 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 the writing in a book memory in Lador by Dor yes what chapter the Moses and Exodus 17 Exodus 17 chapter 17 the end of chapter 17 now Here's what I was thinking about. Let's start with Moshe. Moshe. Here's a, let me make one point about um, about Moshe, about the way the Megillah, the story of the Megillah. The story, we all know the story. The story is that Haman has gone to the king. He's very angry that Mordechai won't bow down to him. So he goes to the decides, he determines, I'm not just going to kill Mordechai, I'm going to kill all, all of Mordechai's people. So he goes, to, so he, first he casts a lot. And the lot falls on the 13th day of the 12th month, month of Adar. Afterwards he goes to the king. And he says to the king, he says, there's a people out there, they're all scattered and dispersed throughout your kingdoms. They're scattered and dispersed. That's probably true. Then he says, and their laws are different from other, right? There was a, they had their own set of laws. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. It certainly should be true, but it's not clear in the Megillah that the Jews are so observant, or observing very much, except for Mordechai. And then it says, and they don't keep your laws, which may or may not be true, it probably isn't true. Therefore, it's not worthwhile to keep them alive. If, it, if you don't mind, let's write an official proclamation to destroy them. That's what Haman says to the... So there, so that's... It's interesting, by the way, that Haman, Megillah has every verse has 20 interesting features to it. An interesting feature of the Megillah is that Haman actually casts the lot before he speaks to the king. It's part of his arrogance. He determines that the casting lots itself is arrogant. Because the casting of lots is, I determine who lives and who dies. I'm all like Nazis, it's the same thing. I determine if you live or die. That's the idea of casting a lot. But he casts a lot, actually, before he goes to the king. He assumes that, the, you know, because when you cast a lot, it's very deterministic. It's going to happen. Oh, yeah, there's the king. We've got to deal with the king. He goes to the king to get his permission or to get his, uh, to make him an accomplice to the crime. But that's Haman. So, the, therefore, the goal of Haman is to kill all the Jews. Fine. Now, we know the story. Mordechai finds out about this. And... I'll tell you something else. I just thought of this. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, chapter four of the Megillah is the key chapter. Chapter 4 of the Megillah says, Mordechai knew all that was happening. That's how chapter 4 starts. This is a small digression from the Megillah, but it's very nice. Mordechai knew all that was happening, so he puts on his sackcloth, right? He goes out to the street, and he cries a bitter cry. That expression appears one of the time in the entire Bible. So when Asaph cries when he hears that Jacob took the blessing. Okay, fine. 
Next verse is very striking. What's the next verse? He went up to the gate of the king. One cannot enter the gate of the king wearing sackcloth. Why does the Megillah say that, actually? Because he goes up to the gate. But he can't enter the gate because he can't enter the gate if you're wearing sackcloth. You're in mourning. Mourners can't enter the palace. I would say I have several observations about that little verse, half verse, and they're the following. One is that it's part and parcel of a larger project that Megillah has, which is to describe the palaces of Achashverosh as a kind of Mishkan. Because we know that in the temple, if you're in mourning, you can't, you, 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 if you're a mourner, you can't, you can't uh, be in the temple. So when Aaron's sons died, for example, Moshe tells him not to mourn. You've got to do the service, you can't mourn. Mourning and sacrificial service are mutually exclusive. So part of that is part of a larger project to make the point that the temple of the Megillah is the palace of Achashverosh. But it's much more than that. He went up to the gate of the king, but he can't enter the gate of the king because you can't enter the gate of the king if you're mourning. And here there were two points I wanted to make. One I made several years ago. I like it. And I thought of something else which is extraordinarily interesting. It's part of my larger idea of the Megillah. So I can't get into all of it, but I'll say one thing. First point is this. Why can't he enter? What's mean he can't enter the gate? He wants to go into the gate. Mordechai is, is in the gate of the king usually. Why does he want to go to the gate of the king? What's the idea of being in the gate of the king? The idea of going into the palace, if you're inside the palace, then you have a certain amount of power, potential power. If you're outside the palace, you have no power. But Mordechai can't enter the palace. The idea might be that if Mordechai could, be in, could get an audience with the king, he thinks, maybe I would speak to the king myself. wouldn't have to call upon my cousin Esther, the queen who knows nothing from nothing. I wouldn't have to call upon her. I'm not even sure she knows she's a Jew at this point. I would go myself. But the point of the Megillah is the Jews, nobody wearing sackcloth can enter the gate. Now who is wearing sackcloth according to the Megillah? Mordechai and every other Jew. It says every, 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 all the Jews are wearing sackcloth. There's only one Jew who doesn't wear sackcloth. Esther. Only Esther. In other words, the point is very simple. The Megillah is saying in effect the Jews can't actually save the Jews. Because anybody who actually cares about this can, can actually go in. The only person who can actually save the Jews, if you can find such a person, is the one Jew who's not wearing sackcloth. There's just one person like that. That's Esther. But therein lies the great challenge, because why isn't she wearing... She doesn't even seem to know what's going on altogether. And even when she finds out, it sounds like, all she cares about is Mordechai. She sends clothing to Mordechai to dress him. Even though it sounds like she knows that she hears more things are happening. That's the second piece of going to the... That's the reason that the Megillah mentions that you can't enter the gate of the king if you're in mourning. But actually I thought of something else. Oh, that's very nice. This third thing doesn't contradict. There are three separate statements and they're all, I think, very good and they all coexist very nicely. Now, I was thinking something else about chapter 4 of the Megillah. Chapter 4 of the Megillah is about the... Con- it's the key chapter. It's where Mordechai is trying to convince Esther to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. He calls them her people. Go to the king and beg him for your, for your people. And at first Esther refuses to go. For two reasons. First of all, she says, it's too dangerous. If you go into the king, to the inner chamber, without being called, you're put to death. 
It's like entering the Holy of Holies, and you're right, you can't enter, except when Yom Kippur, with special dispensations. But if you enter the inner chamber, it's part of the tabernacle of the palace of the king, it's the temple. You can't just walk into the inner chamber, unless you're called. I haven't been called for 30 days, she says. And on top of that, she makes another point. It's against the law. Achad tol la amit. You put the death by law. Sounds like she's saying, listen, we, we can't break the law. There's rules. We have laws. We have rules. You can't break the law. What's interesting is, something that many have noticed, John Levinson in his book, uh, Yoni Grossman notices this. It's a good point. But I don't think they explained it to the depths. That in that chapter, they say the same thing. When Esther and Mordechai first exchange conversations, they're talking to each other, but she's inside the palace, he's out in the street. So how are they talking to each other? So Esther sends a messenger to Mordechai, first to get him dressed, then Mordechai sends a message back, then Esther sends a message back. The messenger in the Megillah has a name, it sounds like a name. What is the name of the messenger? Hatach. The Midrashim talk about who is Hatach, all kinds of Midrashim. But what is the word Hatach? So Hatach, I'm not sure Levinson makes this point, but Yoni does. The word Hatach, Yoni connects to the word Toch. Mordechai is Betochayir, it says. He's in the midst of the city. Betochayir. Vayetse Betochayir. I'm not sure Yoni connects it to Betoch, maybe he does. But Hatach, he says, he's the intermediary. And then they both make the point that at the end of chapter 4, he suddenly disappears. It sounds like Mordechai and Esther somehow are speaking directly to each other. And that the point of Hatach, they claim, Yoni certainly does, is that it's to underscore that, that the Hatach disappears at the end. I think they both make that point. To underscore that at the end they're actually speaking to each other. And that's from third parties. The text has this intermediary, the middleman, Tach. Hatach. I totally agree with that, by the way, as far as it goes. But I wanted to add something to what to, to, to the Hatach business. Here's, here's what I want to add. And this, you have to, I, I, let me simply posit something about the Megillah, which is the basis, one of the three or four bases of the book I'm going to write about the Megillah. And we write new things. The Megillah, I claim the following. I mean, I started this morning to say this. The Megillah is essentially based on the first two books of the Torah. Not only the first two books, there are many references to kingship and all that, but fundamentally, the structure is the first two books of the Torah. And the key story, of course, probably the key story in the first two books of the Torah, is the key story of the Bible. It's the key story of Western civilization, actually. The story of the Garden of Eden. I was talking yesterday to the guy who was going to write my Hebrew version. There were, I, I found 20 connections, 20 good connections to the story of Gan Eden. But here's one of them. Here's, here, the text says the following, that Mordechai puts on his sackcloth by ear, and he went out in the middle of the city. And then it said, he went up to the gate of the king. But you cannot enter the gate of the king if you're mourning, if you're wearing sackcloth. So I have the following thought about this this. Uh, this verse. So listen very carefully to this. The story actually, here's, one, here's a question that various people have asked concerning Mordechai. Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. 
Correct? As a result of his refusal to bow down to Haman, the Jewish people are going to be exterminated, annihilated, because Haman, okay, Haman's a wicked man, megalomaniac. By the end of the day, Mordechai's refusal to bow down to Haman has jeopardized the entire Jewish people. Question. Has Mordechai acted appropriately or inappropriately? This is a question all the commentaries ask. I was reading this, this guy named Bush. It's quite interesting, the Christian. Uh, the Christians actually are very good on the language. They spend most of their time on the philology. So it's, I, it's always worthwhile to read them. So he thinks that Mordechai made a mistake in, bow, in not bowing down to Haman. He endangers all the people. Now I'll tell you what I think. I think that that's wrong, what he says. He doesn't understand. But there's a piece of truth of it, but not what Bush understands. He has no clue. Here's the story. He misses one very important point about the Megillah. The command to bow down to Haman is only for those people in the gate. If you're not in the gate, you don't have to bow down. The reason for that is very simple. The command to bow down to Haman in the Megillah, chapter 3, is after two people try to kill the king. The two people who try to kill the king are named Bigtan and Teresh, and what do they do for a living? They are Shomrei Hasaf, guardians of the threshold. They're protecting the threshold. They're located right in front or right in, inside the door. So therefore, what the king is worried about, actually, is not someone out there is going to kill him. He's worried that somebody in here is going to kill him. In other words, the, the people most dangerous to the king, of course, the closer you are, the more dangerous you are. Right? Point is, so therefore, if you're inside the gate, you have to bow down. Mordechai is inside the gate. Funny thing is, when you first meet him, though, in chapter 2, there was a Jew in the citadel of Shushan, the fortress of Shushan. doesn't say the gate. When he first comes, he's a refugee. When he first comes to uh, exile, he is living inside the citadel. Okay, maybe this not just the regular city of Shushan. Maybe he's living in a nice part, you know? He's not living, who knows, the Lower East Side of Delancey Street when he first comes. Okay, fine. He's uptown, whatever it is, but he's still, but he's not at West End, the Park Air, who knows where. But he's not in Gracie Mansion either. So the point is, but suddenly, he's in the gate. When, when is he in the gate? When does he get in the gate? In the verses, it's, the right Esther becomes the queen. After Esther becomes the queen, and therefore, one can, I think, the text suggests to us that his being in the gate, okay, is a step that he takes, because no one else knows he's related to Esther, a step that he makes once his little cousin, and his little cousin is his adopted daughter and his lackey, she listens that she obeys him fully, even when she's the queen. So he has this little mole inside the, inside the government who obeys every, and suddenly he's a big shot. Now if he had stayed in Shushan Abira, you know, he wouldn't have to bow down. So the fact of the matter is, Yes, you must. You can't bow down to Haman. That's a mistake. You can, how can you bow down to Amalek? That's crazy. Not just bow down. It's worship. You're going to worship this. That's, you can't do that. But who told you to be there in the first place? No one told you to be there in the first place. I was thinking the following thought. 
I'm not, I'm not sure it's right. I like it a lot. The idea is a very deep idea, actually. The story of Gan Eden. The story of Gan Eden. The human being is, has only one commandment in the Gan Eden. It's one commandment. Only one. The commandment is, you can eat all the trees you want. But the tree of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not allowed to eat. right? So what happens? We know the story. There's a snake entices the woman, and she ends up seeing suddenly this tree is so delicious and wonderful and everything, and she eats, and she gives the husband also with her, and also eats. When the snake said, "How's the snake talk to the woman?" Remember what the snake says to the isha. I heard you can't eat any of the fruit. That's what the snake says. Did God say you can't have any fruit? No, 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 she says. We can have all the fruit. However, what's the next verse? But the fruit that's in the toch, that's in the middle, the tochagan, that's what's forbidden. Then they eat of it. And they hear the voice of God, the sound of God walking in the garden. Every word here, you know, is so basic. So what do they do? They hid. Where did they hide? Where? In the sagan. They hide betoch. They go back to the place of the crime. The crime was going to. It's what the woman says to the snake. We can eat all the fruit we want, except. She doesn't say it's Adas. She says, except for the tree, which is Betoch Hagan. Then they eat of the tree. And then they go back to the scene of the crime. Why did the Torah say that, actually? Why, why did the Torah say they went back Betoch? You can say many things about it. But I, what I would like to say this morning, maybe tomorrow morning I say something different, is that actually, they start off on the right track, in a sense. In other words... What you have to do, if you want to repent, is you have to go back to the same place. They're standing in that place. That means they've taken a very appropriate step. They're going back to... That's, that's where all repentance begins. It begins by going back to that place. In fact, the Rambam puts it very dramatically. How do we know if somebody sinning, he's talking about a man, is in the same town with the same woman, the Rambam says, and he doesn't do the same thing. You go back to the same place. It'd be very profound agreement. But what happens? Where are you? Where are you? Oh, and we were we, we were naked, so we were hiding. Who told you? Did you eat of that fruit? And there was the opportunity. Yes, I ate. I'm standing right here, of course. I went back to the scene of the crime. I have sinned before you. Adam could have said this, but that's not what he says. Says the woman you put by my side, she made me do it. Your fault, her fault, everybody but me. But he started off. The, they started in the right place. They went back betoch. I was thinking that actually, apart from the other two interpretations I suggested, which I like a lot, don't regret saying it, is the third interpretation. That's the point of betoch. He wants to go to Shara Melech. He goes. He goes betoch here. Says the Megillah. He wanted to go back to Shara Melech, and apart from all the other significances, there's another point. He really has to go back to the Shara. The truth of the matter is, that's where the problem begins. The problem begins 
Because if Mordechai doesn't put himself in that position, I presume it's to advance his own career. He does have royal blood. He is an ambitious man. Things just don't happen to Mordechai. Maybe ambitious for good. He wants to be the chief advisor to the president, so he's going to give the president good advice. Whatever it is. But at the end of the day, he put himself in a place where, where, where now he can't actually do what the king wants him to do, which is to bow down to Haman. And when Haman finds out about it, he doesn't do it in Haman's face, by the way, he hides it. Haman doesn't know it first. The other people tell him, okay. But if he weren't in the gate, he wouldn't have a problem. So therefore, if he wants to repent, he's crying and he's screaming, so he has to go back, but he can't go back to the gate. It's a paradox. He can't, the very fact that he's mourning precludes his going back to Betoch. That's the presence of the Hatoch, that's the Toch. The text is underscoring the idea of Toch. Because the text of the Megillah, which reminds us of the story of the Garden of Eden in 20 other ways, I can't get into those now. You read the book someday, you'll see. So 20 other ways, the Betoch is, is additionally. So that, but that little verse has three different significances to it. Three different points. It's the protocols of the court. <coughs> it's the fact that the Jews can't actually save the Jews. And then on the personal level, it reminds the reader of how he got in this trouble in the first place. For a very simple reason. Mordechai put himself in the gate of the king. He was thinking maybe good things. We don't know why he does it. Is it personal ambition? Is it personal ambition, but I can also do good for my people? He's Mordechai the Jew. He wants to help the Jews. Who knows the reason? But at the end of the day, his being in the gate forces him <coughs> into a position where he can't obey the king. He did the right thing not bowing down. 100% correct. But who told you to be there in the first place? <coughs> yeah? Is it, is it too simplistic to think that he could be the Torah simply because he wants to be connected to Esther? That's possible. We know that he's looking at Esther earlier and protecting her earlier, that is a possibility. So that's a, it's certainly true of him, by the way, in the earlier verse, By the way, that verse itself is very striking. Every day, Mordechai would you hear even a resonance over thereof, and actually, you know, when you hear resonance of it, you read the verse differently. When you, through the prism of Esther, God is walking, and God is walking through the garden by Ruach Hayom towards nightfall. And God called out to Adam and said, Where are you? You hear for the first time, when you read this, you hear God is actually, we always think of Ayeka as a challenge to, the, to Adam. It's a, a, a kind of uh, indictment. Where are you? Well, what would you do? Which it is an indictment. But you can also read it a bit differently. Where is he? Where's, where's my little... It's God's, God's baby, basically. It's God's little baby. Where, where is he? It's very human terms. God walks around the garden, but it's like the silly kids playing hide and seek. We don't know that. So you can't find him. The kid's missing. You'll call the cops or something. And the kid, Yesterday I was teaching, I get a call in the middle of my class, your daughter didn't show up at school today. She left 7.30 in the morning, so quarter to 11, you see. Oh, well, it's Tuesday, so I panicked, you know. What do you mean she didn't show up? Called the school, it was about 10 to 11, I raced, I called the school, whatever. 
she was there, of course, but that doesn't matter. The point is, the point is, you worry. God is walking in the garden. Can't where's his, where's where's Adam? I don't see him. Where are you? Where are you? You know, that's Mordechai. It's exactly the verse of Mordechai. He's worried. Esther's taken, and she didn't volunteer. Let's not forget that she's taken like all the others, like a bundle of wheat. All the women are taken to the king, imprisoned in the in the harem. They're imprisoned. It's not a nice little story. It's brutal. They're imprisoned against their will, coerced into the whole treat like 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 treat mummies in the Chumash. The twelve months of beauty treatments. It's all like mummies. Like point is, a different sense over there. Suddenly, God is worried. Actually, where is where is where's my boy? Where is he? Ayeka, where are you? That's one way to read it. The other way, of course, equally true is Ayeka is a challenge. Where are you? Where are you means not God knows. Where are you means what have what have you done? The truth of the matter is. God called out to Adam and God said, Ayeka, right? Ayomelo Ayeka. What you expect to read, maybe, maybe this is the point of the Chumash. Elsewhere it says, when God calls to a human being, and God called Hineni. You expect the Hineni. Abraham Hineni. The Ayeka is already, it's already in a sense, a condemnation of the human because Ayekwa should never have to be uttered. It would have been sufficient to say and God called out to the, to the human. God called out to Adam. Adam should have said, Hineni, here I am. But Adam says nothing. Silence. Silence, where is he? Ayekwa. And then he still has the opportunity. Then he starts with the excuses. Anyway, my point is, it's a good example, small digression, of how one little, first of all, when you read it, First, the question is, there are answers to a question. What is the question? Why does the, why does the big say this altogether? He went up to the gate of the king, but he didn't go into it because he's wearing sackcloth. The question is very simple. Who, who cares? Why are you telling me this? That's the right question, to which I offer three distinct possibilities. I happen to like all three enormously. I think they're all excellent. It gives you some sense of this, such a... McGill is a gold mine, by the way. This every, every, let me get to the main point I want to make. It's a hundred points about Moshe. I'll make one simple point about Moshe. Let's get back to Esther. So Esther is told, go beg the king for your people. So we know, everybody knows the story. She, instead of begging the king for her people, she invites him to two parties. Right? Then in chapter 7, finally, what do you want? What do you want? And the king the previous night is so concerned. He's up all night. He, he can't sleep or whatever. So he said, what do you want, Esther? Chapter 7. Esther says, let me tell you what I want. I want my, my, my own life and the life of my people. For we, she says, me and my people have been sold, right? Handed over, one might say, to be utterly destroyed. And not just to be enslaved, but to be utterly enslaved, I might have kept my mouth shut but to be utterly destroyed. Who would do such a terrible thing and where is he? Who's such a wicked guy? I never will. Oh, a wicked, wicked man. This wicked Haman was right here. Fine. So we know the story. So Haman is killed. Fine. King goes out. King goes back. Whatever. That's chapter 7. And then Esther is saved and Mordechai is brought into the palace and the king gives Mordechai his, 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 his ring and everything. Chapter 8 
Esther falls down to the ground and pleads and begs the king. What do you want? He gives the scepter. What do you want? Please, 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 king, take back those, those, those decrees you issued and all the Jews are going to be killed. Can't help you, he says. You know, I, whatever. I look, I've done so much. I made you, right? I, I, I say, right? I, I, I handed over the house to the property of Haman to Mordechai. I've killed Haman because he did such wicked things against the Jews. I'll tell you what, I can't rescind, you can't take back the king's command, but if you wish, issue, issue a second command, whatever you want, write, write whatever you want, but the first command has to stand. Now, there's many, many things to say about this, but I want to make a simple observation, which is obvious to all of us. If Esther doesn't beg the king in chapter 8, suppose Esther doesn't beg the king, what's going to happen? Well, Esther's going to live, and Mordechai's going to live, and all the Jews are going to die. The king doesn't care one way or the other if the Jews live or die. So when Esther actually begs the king in chapter 8, she says a very interesting thing. Oh, my king, my king, if I have found favor in your eyes, and you like me, and I'm good, and all that, he says, please, save my people. And she continues, because how could I live and, and see the wickedness that will befall my people? How could I live and see the destruction of my, of my extended family, of those that came from my homeland, my landsmen, whatever you want? Then the king says, okay, take the ring, issue a second decree. And I was thinking that what Esther does is identical to what Moshe does. Identical. No, not Asavanishma. No. After the golden calf. After the golden calf, God said to Moshe the following. You know, Moshe, take the people to the land, those people you took out, take them to the land, and, and I'll send my angel before you, and milk and honey, and all. I'm not going to go with them. If I go with them, we're going to fight, I'm going to kill them. So I'm not going to go with them. So everybody's very upset. Then Moshe turns to God and says, later in that chapter, it's one of the great chapters of the Bible. It says Moshe to God, you never, you told the people who, whom, whom you will send with the people. Viatol, oh, you got to tell me, but you never said to me who you're sending with me. Eit Hashem Tishlachi me. And then Moshe adds, and you said that you, you've chosen me, and not only did you say that, and you said, Moshe, you find favor in my eyes. And therefore, Right? If I find favor, teach me your ways, teach me your paths, right? Teach me more, so I'll find even more favor. And remember, these are your people. God said to Moshe, I, I, my face will go with you and I, I, I will lead you. And Moshe said to God in chapter 33, If you don't go with us, don't bother. How therefore will I see that you have, we, we have found favor in your eyes if you go with us? And we shall be separate and different from all the other nations. And God said to Moses, this thing also I will do. For you have found favor in my eyes and I have chosen you. That's a very important dialogue. It's very subtle. Moshe first says to God, you're sending an angel with them. Okay, I got that part. But great. How about with me? You, you love me. I, you have found favor in my eyes, right? God says, I'm going to go with you personally. With you, Moshe is different. With them, with angel. But we're going to have this ongoing relationship. Me and you. Says Moshe, that's great. And if we have such a good relationship, even, teach me even more about you. 
Teach me all your paths and your ways. Remember, these are your people. And I'm going to go with you. If you don't go with us, don't bother. Us. Us. Right? What Moshe says is, you can't just go with me and not with them, because I'm with them. So you've got to make a choice. If you love me, this, this, if you love me, you're going to take them. And you said you love me. I know you love me so much. That's exactly what you have in Megillah Esther. Esther, Nasa Chain Bienov. The Megillah plays with the word Chain over and over again. Esther, for whatever reason, finds grace in the eyes of Achashverosh. He's very taken with Esther. That's clear. Of all the women, he loves her the best. Now, here's the point Esther, what do you want, Esther? Someone's trying to kill me and my people. Who would do such a thing? The wicked Haman. The king dispatches Haman for any number of reasons. But one of the main ones is, as he says, you would attack the queen in my own presence. He's very, caref- he's very, he's very careful about the queen. He likes Esther. He doesn't want anybody harming Esther. So if anybody's trying to kill Esther, he's going to put to death. That's wonderful. The problem is that Esther is not pleading just for herself. She's pleading for her people. The people, the king disregarded Esther has to beg him again, but, the, but when she begs him the second time, she doesn't say the people are good people. She says nothing about the people being good. She says one simple point. You love me, right? You want to keep me in a good mood, right? If my people die, I won't be in a good mood. You're not going to like that. How could I survive if my people die? Okay, I got it. For you won't do anything. Here, I can't rescind the first decree, but issue your own decree. Lose on the hate. You're like, God. It's exactly the ploy of Moshe. And I want to say something else about Moshe's ploy and the story of Moshe and the Ego, which is very, very central to the Megillah. Just one last word. There's a lot to say. I'll say one small thing. One of the things that characterizes Moshe's story of the Ego, something that we've talked about and studied, those are studied many times, actually. There's always new, new facets to it. When Moshe comes down the mountain with the tablets in his hands, and they turned back and went down the mountain. And when he comes to the bottom of the mountain, his disciple is waiting for him, Joshua. Yoshua waits for him at the foot of the mountain. And they're standing on the bottom of the mountain and they hear a noise from the camp. Because we know the people were screaming about the golden calf. Yoshua doesn't know what's... Yoshua says to Moshe, must be a war. Must be a war. Moshe's been away like for 40 days, let's say. Many weeks, several weeks, six weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Joshua, first of all, has no idea what's going on in the camp. Because Joshua went and waited for Moshe at the foot of the mountain till he returns. He's waiting there for 40 days. Joshua is absolutely not in the camp. He has no clue. And Joshua said to Moses, there's a sound of war. And someone's by Yomer, he said, it's not clear who the he is, either Moshe or Joshua says, no, it's not the sound of the victor. It's not the sound of the loser. It's a tortured cry that I hear. The point of that little exchange, why did the Chumash even mention that altogether? Part of it is to say that Yoshua wasn't there. But part of it is to express the difference between Moshe and Yoshua. Joshua is the general. So when Joshua hears noises, he hears a war. Because that's what generals hear. And Moshe is not hearing that. Moshe is hearing something else, a tortured cry. The point of that little dialogue is to make the following observation in the Chumash. Moshe comes down the mountain, he has one faithful disciple. But the disciple and Moshe are not on the same wavelength. They don't hear the same things. When Moshe ascended, when Moshe left the camp to get the 
Luchot, he told to the people in chapter 24, after Nasev and Nishma, he says, I leave you, Aaron and Chur will be with you. If you have a problem, go to them. But after Moshe leaves, Chur disappears off the face of the earth, never hear from him again, and Aaron's the guy who builds the golden calf. So Moses comes down the mountain, Vayif, and he turned back, reminds the reader of the earlier verse in Shemot, Vayif and Kovachol Vayarki Enish. There's absolutely nobody. His own brother sold him out. Chur has disappeared. And his disciple Joshua, faithful disciple, he doesn't hear the same thing. He's done the same way. Moshe's all by himself. He has one thing. He has the tablets. Mizeh Mizeh. From this side and that side. Mizeh Mizeh is a term that appears in the Megillah, by the way, but also with Amalek. When Moses fights Amalek, his hands are weak. But Aaron and Chor supported Moshe's hands. And that's Aaron and Chor found in Amalek. Mizeh Chadu Mizeh But now he has nothing. The only mizel mizel, the only support Moses has, he has no human support. He has the tablets. He's sure we're going to break the tablets because he can't hold on to the tablets because the tablets are indictment of the people. So he's forced to make a choice. He smashes the tablets to save the people. It's the story about somebody who is completely and totally on his own and he has to figure out some way to save the people by himself. And that is exactly the story of Miguel and Esther in terms of Esther. She is completely alone. Not just she alone, but the very person she has to confront to save the Jews is the same jerk who signed the decree in the first place. It's not approaching God. I mean, he's God in the Megillah. But he's a guy who at best is an idiot. And at worst, willingly signed the decree to kill all the Jews. So she's completely and totally alone. Has to enter a space where it's dangerous to enter. And she hasn't been called for 30 days. And Mordechai's advice to beg the king is wrong advice. That won't work. He's got to figure it all out by herself. She's the only one who can do it. No one, nobody else can enter the court wearing sackcloth. As I said before, that's the challenge of Esther. It's an awesome story. But the Megillah is playing off the story of Moshe. Now there's have to stop at this point. Actually, there's a lot more. Having seen all that, there's, of course, much more, which is extremely interesting. But... What a sheer! Yeah. So unbelievable. I love it. Awesome. Beyond belief. Yeah, go ahead. But what about um, she wants the Jews to fast and to mourn? Yeah, she does. So she's, she doesn't want to be alone. She actually she wants their support. No, no, she identifies fully with them. She's also going to fast, but at the end of the day, they can't do anything. At the end of the day, only the assimilated Jew can go in there. The, the, the non assimilated Jew can't save the Jews. It's only Esther, who, and she wears, and she, they're fasting, she, 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 she has a party. She invites them to a party for three, isn't it, right? Wow. But it, says, it says she changes her clothes. That's right. She puts on regal clothing, it says. All right, we'll stop here at this point. This